Welcome to a special early edition of the Monday, June 20th, 2016 Father's Day episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning, as well as Classical Wisdom Wednesdays and History in Five Fridays. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Norway and Denmark had staked their survival upon the strictest interpretation of neutrality to escape the war. Their sympathies were with the Allies, but they took extraordinary precautions to avoid offending Hitler. So, on April 9th, Hitler invaded Denmark and Norway. Denmark was powerless to resist, and didn't. Norway was stunned by an avalanche of force and treachery. Fifth columnists, led by Major Quisling, a Norwegian traitor, spread panic and confusion. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. When you have a time machine, those little boxes on the calendar don't count for much. So when we had a chance to air a great interview for a book we thought would be perfect for Father's Day, we figured, why not do it the week before the Sunday holiday? To give you a chance to hit the Amazon link at historyauthor.com and maybe pick up the book. So today, we'll be skiing out of our time machine and into the snow-covered Norwegian mountains during the darkest days of World War II. German forces under General Nicholas von Falkenhorst had overrun the Nordic nation, but still faced a determined underground resistance. Looking at a map, it's easy to see why Hitler coveted Norway. Its long coastline and proximity to Great Britain made it a great base of operations. But there was another, more sinister asset that he sought to steal, the Norsk Hydro plant in the town of Rukon. It's 75 miles due west of the capital, Oslo. But the peaks, valleys, and fjords mean the trip by car, even on today's roads, takes two and a half hours. And I know because I've been there. More on that in a bit. The largest hydroelectric plant caught the eyes of Nazi scientists because it produced heavy water, a key component in producing nuclear bombs. The Allies knew that if Hitler got his grubby little hands on the ultimate weapon, he would wipe London off the map and achieve total victory. Neil Bascom tells the story of this pivotal moment when humanity stood on the precipice of a new dark age. He joins us to discuss the Winter Fortress, the epic mission to sabotage Hitler's atomic bomb. Neil is the national award-winning and New York Times best-selling author of several nonfiction narratives. Those include Hunting Eichmann, The Perfect Mile, and One More Step about the first man with cerebral palsy to scale Kilimanjaro and finish the Kona Ironman. So what gave us the idea to explore this particular book and tie it into Father's Day? Well, Neil's book was recommended to me by Jay Atkinson, who Men's Health magazine called The Bard of New England Toughness. Men, toughness, 
Father's Day, and Norwegian commandos in World War II? Are you kidding me? What dad, what man, wouldn't sign up for that? To read a free sample chapter of The Winter Fortress, visit neilbascom.com. That's B-A-S-C-O-M-B. Oh, and if you haven't caught my interview with Jay, he joined us to discuss his latest book, Massacre on the Merrimack, Hannah Dustin's Captivity and Revenge in Colonial America. Okay, now that we've donned our winter camouflage suits and waxed up our skis, let's head back in time to Nazi-occupied Norway and assault the Winter Fortress. I'm joined on the line by Neil Bascom, author of The Winter Fortress, the epic mission to sabotage Hitler's atomic bomb. Thank you for making the time to talk with the History Author Show. Oh, wonderful to be here, Dean. Listeners may be familiar with Norway from the 1994 Olympics or the Netflix series Lillehammer. You were born in Colorado, though, and raised in St. Louis. So how did you learn of this story that became The Winter Fortress? Well, one of my favorite books is Richard Rhodes' The Making of the Atomic Bomb. And it's this, you know, massive tome, I've read it probably too many times, of the story of the genesis of the atomic bomb program. And in that book is this tiny story of their look and the sabotage of the atomic bomb by these Norwegian commandos. And when I read it the first time, I was like, wow, this is an interesting story. And I sort of went through it. But a few years later, I read again and I was like, wow, I really want to know more about who these guys were and what they were doing and why they were fighting. And so I went to Norway and started to meet with some of the families and take a look in the archives. And I was like, wow, this is just a tremendous story that that in many ways hasn't been told in its full flesh and bone. So I went after it. And despite the fact there was a movie made about it way back when, it's still unknown to most Americans. I know when I visited the heavy water plant, you can go now and tour it, it was really unknown when I came home and told people that I'd gone there. They had no idea of this story of Norsk Hydro. So what was the response that you are getting now, now that you've published the book? What do people think? I think there there are some people, um, much like you, who've seen Here's the Telmark and the Kirk Douglas movie and, and feel like, wow, I have heard of that little vignette and that's interesting. But I don't think anybody had that sort of idea of the full depth of this story everything from the Norwegian resistance to who these individuals were as people. And the response so far has been overwhelmingly positive. I think people are fascinated, particularly by this individual who in any of the history books and any of the movies really doesn't come through at all. His name was Leif Tronstadt, and he was the scientist who developed the heavy water plant at Fairmook and then started, once the Germans occupied his country, started spying on them had to escape because the Gestapo was after him, went to England and really found himself at the nexus, at the heart of the operations to destroy this very plant that he had helped build. And so it's individuals like that that I think people are responding to and are just amazed that this story hasn't been told, like you said, in its entirety. Much more than a war story. In fact, I've heard some of your previous interviews, and you say it's really a survival tale and a story of patriotism and dedication because 
these men are not always having action like the Hollywood movie. You know, a movie has to move in fast paces. When you're a commando, when you're a resistance leader or a person that's been put in prison and is going to be interrogated, there's a lot of downtime, so to speak. There's a lot of just boredom that you're fighting. You're not going to have a radio. You're not going to have TV or an iPad or an iPhone. And I think today people would probably lose it. They would crack because I know for myself, I take the ferry bus sometimes across the Hudson and I took it recently. And I said, 20 years ago, when I took this every day, what did I do? I didn't have my, I didn't have email. I didn't have my phone. I couldn't talk to anybody. I know I would carry a book on the occasional Gilded Age president, but I said, is that it? That's what I would do. I would sort of be alone with my own thoughts and completely unplugged for an hour or so until I returned home. That's something, multiply it by many, many times, Combine in starvation, combine in the Nazis are looking for you, scouring the countryside, combine the cold, the lack of water, the lack of food. When you do get food, it's reindeer. It's not fresh vegetables or anything that's going to give you vitamins. So you have disease coming in. Really is a survival story as much as a war story. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely in, in Winter Fortress these moments, these tremendous moments of high drama when they infiltrate the plant, when there's a chase on skis when these gliders come down into this place called the Vita that are, you know, dramatically, if you were doing a movie of this, you're like, wow, I need more of those scenes. Those are tremendous. But as you said, I mean, there are oftentimes, and I think this is sort of equally compelling, where these saboteurs have to survive out in the Vita, this 3,500 square mile expanse of rock, ice, and snow, where they are living in this single room cabin for them through one of the harshest winters that they've ever seen. And they're trying to just sort of keep themselves together. And I think what's interesting about that is that we often hear about these stories and or read about stories of special forces or commandos and all of them are unalloyed heroes where they never have a moment of doubt and they're gung ho the whole way through. And the truth of the matter is that's not real life. And that's definitely not the story here on the mission against Fairmoke and the heavy water plant. There's a moment in this story, which I love, this grouse team, this four-man team, who's kind of the preparation team for these operations. And they're in the Vita, they're in this cabin, they've been there for two months, and they're, like you said, they're cracking. And they don't know if they can go on. They're starving, bitterly cold. They don't know really why they're there, what the purpose is, if it's worth it. And they start to lose hope and they, they're like, if I could just go down. I mean, their families live not a day's ski away and they had dreams of platters of food, but they couldn't go. And so Paulson, who's the leader of this small team, knew he was cracking and knew his team was cracking. And so there's this tremendous moment where they start to tell each other stories. One of them was it was a bad poet, so he starts telling bad poetry. Another was Paulson was a great hunter, and he had a family, rules of the Paulson family hunting, and he would recount these to his fellow teammates. And then Arne Hellstrip, who was a plumber, he would basically dissect how to plumb a house and how to fix the toilet, just to sort of keep these guys together, united, to pass the hours. And it's this really compelling sort of very human moment in this story that I think reflects your question and reflects the truth. 
there's a couple of things there from what you said. One is once you read the Winter Fortress, every time you hear somebody say the Vita, you'll want to go put a sweater on because <laughs> it, it really comes across how cold Absolutely it is. Absolutely agree. I mean, <laughs> we're recording this in the beginning of June and I'm kind of shivering. I'm like, oh, why does he keep mentioning it? It's as if you opened a door and I'm feeling a draft. But you're talking about the suffering. And when you put it in context of, okay, these guys know that Hitler's going to get an atomic bomb and all the horror that that means. But in fact, although they're told that the reason you're going after the heavy water plant is because this bomb can be built that will wipe London off the map, they dismiss that. They think, oh, well, you know, they're just trying to really motivate us. That That's not possible. So when you look at it from that perspective, you say, these men had such dedication just because their country asked them to do this. They knew that it was that important and they went and did it. It wasn't as if they even believed the full story, even though they were told. That's an incredible amount of dedication. It really is inspiring. Yeah, it's inspiring. And it just kind of sort of pierces the core of why I wrote this book. And the question I kept asking myself when I was writing it, when I was researching it, is trying to sort of plumb why these guys were fighting. Like you said, they did not believe that there existed such a weapon that could destroy London with a single bomb. So if that they're not fighting for that, what are they fighting for? They're fighting for each other. They're fighting to survive and keep the team alive. But they're really fighting for something very simple. They're fighting for their town. They're fighting for their families. They're fighting for, as Life Tronstadt said, you know, the fjords and the lakes and the rivers of Norway for them to be free. And it's a very sort of patriotic, in some ways almost cliche-like reason, but it's what motivated them. It's what kept them warm through those very long, bitter winter months. And it strikes, as I said, at the core of why they were fighting. And it wasn't for king. It wasn't really for country. It was for something sort of small but great, town, village, family. There's that song that they talk about in the book or that you talk about in the book about how they want to have a country of their own. And this is a thing for Norway. People may just assume when they look at Scandinavia that they've always been sort of happy, friendly neighbors. But I know when I was there touring the country with my friend, he said, you know, Sweden and Norway have had a, a lot of wars and you know how many we started? None. So if there is this feeling of they're pretty centrally located where there was fighting going on. So it's not as if they just roll over. In fact, I mentioned Lillehammer at the top. There's a line that Stephen Van Zant speaks to a mafia thug because the guy tells him, oh, you've been living among these Norwegians too long. You're soft. And he says, quote, the fjords are full of bodies of those who mistook Norwegians for soft and weak. I get a little goosebumps when I hear that because I've been there and because I have such a good friend over there and have learned so much about Norway. So paint it for us the picture of the toughness of the citizens, not these guys who were sent out there who've had military training, but the men, women, school teachers, even at some point go on strike and refuse to teach the Nazi version of history to children. Tell us who these people were that dared defy the Nazi occupation and support the mission against the Winter Fortress. Absolutely. The Germans, when they originally went into Norway, of course, they wanted the coastlines and they wanted some of the economic machine of Norway. But they thought in many ways that the Norwegians would kind of welcome them and that they would be compatriots. And of course, when they occupied Norway, that was far from the case. 
there were people who were sympathizers, collaborators, but there was also a huge population, ordinary people, like you said, school teachers and plumbers and clerks and even politicians who were ardently fighting and resisting. I recall this conversation I had outside by Lake Moss, which is the lake that feeds the hydroelectric plant at Vermuk, and I was at this inn, and I was meeting with a family member of Einar Schinnerland, who was one of the kind of the key early individuals of this operation, and recounted this story of the Germans taking over the, the hotel the family operated and putting their muddy boots on the wall. And the family just sort of cringing with hatred and anger and just knowing that they had to do something, they had to fight, they had to resist no matter what it took. And then you have Einer, and just to give you an idea of the toughness of these people, you have Einer who after about a year after the German occupation, he's like, enough is enough. I have to, I don't know how to fight, but I need to be trained to fight. So he tells his mother that he's going on a ski trip and he's going hunting in the mountains. When in fact, he goes southwest to the coast and he's going to hijack a steamer by gunpoint with a couple other people. But he falls on his way there in a skiing accident and he ruptures his knee and there's blood pooling in his knee and he knows he needs to get it taken care of by the doctor. But he also knows he needs to leave the next day. So there's Einer on an operating table. The doctor's saying, well, you'll recover in a couple weeks. We'll do the surgery and you'll be fine here, start this anesthetic. And Einer says, no anesthetic. I need to be sharp. I need to be able to go tomorrow. And so you have this operation with Einer, no anesthetic on his knee, cutting into his flesh, and he just grips the side of the hospital bed and takes it. Now, that, I think, is at the is a shining example of the toughness of these Norwegians, and it follows that thread through the whole story. Another thing that I, I remember quite well over this sort of idea of toughness, of self-sufficiency, of doing what it takes, and the story of Newt Haugland, who was the radio operator on this mission. And he, after the war, became a father, and he was with his sons, and they were coming back to Oslo after a skiing trip. And his sons were misbehaving, and he stops the car, and he says, get out. Tells his sons, you know, uh, <laughs> get out of the car. And they're halfway to, to Oslo, right? So there you've got another 50 miles outside the city. And it's wintertime. And he says, enough. I'm I'm going, and you guys can ski back to Oslo. And so there you have these two teenage boys skiing back to Oslo as the car their father's driving takes off in the distance. Now, you may call that slightly harsh, but that is the sort of metal that these guys were made of. And, you know, I spent time skiing with Haugland's son in the Vita, and they are some tough, tough dudes. <laughs> is that the one you got to wear, the former Long John's? Yes, I got to wear the former long johns of New Togland because my manufactured poly whatever stuff that I brought to Norway, they sort of laughed at and, and said, here, you can have my father's old wool long underwear. It's the only thing that's going to keep you warm. And it did. I did feel a little strange wearing it, I have to say. You were the same size. That was fortunate. We were. We were the same size. <laughs> you quote Winston Churchill calling the term heavy water, sinister, eerie, and unnatural. What made it not only so strange, but so rare and valuable that it was worth dying? On a very basic level, you have regular water, H2O, which has uh, hydrogen and oxygen. With heavy water, you have something called deuterium, which is a variant or an isotope of hydrogen. It has a neutron in its nucleus, which regular hydrogen doesn't, which makes it heavier. 
But what's useful about it and why it became such an ingredient of intense interest in atomic research is when you have a chain reaction, when you have a heavy water reactor, you have neutrons flinging around. And when they hit this heavy water, they slow, but the heavy water doesn't absorb those neutrons, stealing them away from the chain reaction. And so heavy water is instrumental in producing a chain reaction, producing an atomic reaction. And besides graphite, it was the only ingredient that scientists knew could be used to develop a reactor. And if you have a reactor, you can free plutonium. And if you can free plutonium, you have a basic element for a bomb. And it's very rare, heavy water. There's one molecule for every 41 million molecules of regular water. And it's very hard to produce. And it requires a lot of water and a lot of power, cheap power. And there was one place in the whole world that had developed the process, thanks to Leif Tronstadt, the Norwegian scientist, that produced it in any quantity. And that is why the Germans wanted it so badly, and they needed it. I mentioned that one of my oldest and best friends lives in Norway, and he's one of these guys like yourself and like me who you go to any place and you say, well, where's the World War II history around here? I must <laughs> must be able to sort of dig out some kind of history at least, but usually World War II when you're talking about Europe. And so he took me to several of these World War II sites in the country, site of the occupation, a couple of torpedo tubes there in the Oslo Fjord that you can go and sail past, and that plays a role in the the initial German invasion, one of the places was Norsk Hydro. So when you offered me your book, I said, I've been there. I know that place. What a great story. I want to relive it. That's also where he introduced me to a colleague who was a young boy at the time of the operations against the hydro plant by the Allies trying to bomb it, trying to sabotage it. There's a very sad incident, well, a couple, but one of them is when the gliders go down and there's a monument there to the Allied soldiers. This man, when he was a young boy, the Germans had blocked off the whole area, but kids, you know, they can kind of get in anywhere is the way he talked about it. And so they snuck through the Nazi guards and managed to bring back some of the insignias, which showed them who it was that had crashed. And then they knew it wasn't a German plane, that the Allies were indeed targeting this plant and trying to take it out of German hands. By the way, the monument there is the wing in the stone. It's very poignant there to, when you think of them smashing into one of these massive mountains there and really having no chance, a glider, no engine, nothing. When you look at the hydro plant, it's daunting to think of reaching it on foot while it's being guarded by armed soldiers. And there's only that one little bridge going in and you walk across that now or drive across it. It's very intimidating. And yet these <laughs> saboteurs decide that they are going to scale up there. They're going to climb up there, which is incredible. It's, it's so intimidating that the Germans don't even bother guarding that way, correct? Absolutely. So, <laughs> yeah. Describe in your words how isolated the Winter Fortress was to reach and how dangerous. The Vermouth plant is located about 100 miles west of Oslo, and it's in this valley, this sort of slotted valley that's so deep that the sun, most times of the year, can't even reach the base. It's this very steep valley, and then you have Vermouth, this plant, which is set on this rock outcropping on the edge of a 500-foot cliff. And most of the year is covered in snow. And so if you come to this place, you can even come there today in the hydroelectric plant, which looks like a castle, looks like a fortress. You come into this valley and you turn this corner and you see this massive structure of concrete and steel and stone. 
and it just is so intimidating. And the idea of these guys in the middle of winter under German guard trying to sort of penetrate this place, whether it's to cross the single lane suspension bridge or climb the cliffside or come down from the steep mountain above, it's just awesome to even imagine. And then you put it in the context of the particular time they were starving, had been out in the wild for months, they were tired, they were weary, and they knew that if they were captured, they would have to take a cyanide capsule. It just puts all of this into this context of tremendous bravery and slight insanity, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> Especially when you consider that it's not like Castle Wolfenstein or any of those World War II games that you play. They can't go in and shoot everybody because they know there'll be reprisals against civilians. So they have to I could hear people saying, oh, come on, this is not, <laughs> you have to scale up and then you can't kill anybody. You can't shoot your way out of it. You have to die really rather than kill. You have to do all of this and they don't think they're even going to come back. And this is why it's just such a miracle that they're able to pull it off. Yeah. I mean, the leader of the operation, uh, Joaquin Ronenberg, they were pretty, well, they were very meticulous with the preparations on attacking the plant how they were going to penetrate it, where they were going to go from A to B to see how much time it was going to take. And then when they talked about the escape, it was pretty rough. It was pretty, well, we'll go back down the valley and we'll ski up to the Vita and then try to make our way out. Because honestly, they didn't think they were going to make it. I think to a man, they thought they could penetrate the plant, get inside and blow it up. They thought at least one of them would be able to get in there. But they very much thought that the alarm would be raised and there was no real way to get out. And then you have to confront the fact that the Swedish border is hundreds of miles away and there's sure to be a massive manhunt. And so it just was, this, in many ways, an, an impossible mission. And they couldn't, like you said, kill anybody because if they killed anybody, there would be reprisals on the local population. Half these guys on this mission were from the town situated just a couple miles south of the plant called Rukon. They had family there. They knew there would be reprisals against them. The Germans had shown their brutality in Norway against other cities, and they were sure to do it there. The fact that they pulled this off without killing any German soldiers is one reason that when General von Falkenhorst, the head of the occupation, gets there, he calls the raid the most splendid coup, which you wouldn't think of. You know, the guy's just uh, lost a major piece. This was his job. He's trying to block it. Doesn't stop him from telling all of them, how the heck could you let this happen? Why, aren't, why don't you have guards in the right places, this and that? But he respects the fact that they were able to pull this off. It's just such an amazing military feat. What is the Nazi response to the sabotage once these men make it in, blow the plant, and get out? Well, I think there's two points. One, one before I answer that question, I, I think it's important to point out that these saboteurs, they were extremely brave, they were very competent, and they did a marvelous job. This operation was probably the best prepared one of the war. The amount of information that these guys had on Vermouth, thanks to Life Transat, the scientist turned spy master, they knew every lock, they knew every stairwell, they knew every entry point, they knew the guard rotations. Thanks to Livestrom set and Einar Schinnerland, who was spying on this place for over a year, they were able to, in many ways, build this plant in their heads and know how to infiltrate it and destroy it without being found out. 
That does not disregard the bravery of the saboteurs, but it should be taken within that context. So what was the German response? The German response to the sabotage, the gunner side operation, was pretty heated. You had General Falkenhorst praising the methods of the saboteurs, but then sending many of the soldiers to the Russian front, which basically meant death. And the head of the SS in Norway, a man named Heinrich Thales, he essentially sent an army to this area, about 10,000 men, to scour the countryside, to go into the Vita, this really rough, snowy countryside, and try to find these men who perpetrated this operation. And they found nobody. They even I found this great quote in the Norwegian papers at the time, calling these saboteurs the ghosts of the Vida. My guest is author Neil Bascom, and his book is The Winter Fortress, the epic mission to sabotage Hitler's atomic bomb. You can visit him at neilbascom.com, that's B-A-S-C-O-M-B, to read the prologue and first chapter of The Winter Fortress absolutely free. You can also follow him on Twitter at Neil Bascom, or like facebook.com, Slash Neil R. Bascom. Howard Schneider writes in his Wall Street Journal review of the Winter Fortress that the British, as well as Norwegian physicist Leif Tronstad, quote, were determined to thwart the Nazi regime's acquisition of heavy water, probably because they rightly feared that the first target for a German atomic bomb would be London. In 1942, the British War Cabinet put forward plans of the highest priority for a raid on Vermouk. And from that point, the Winter Fortress metamorphosizes from engrossing history into a smashing thriller, unquote. And the Seattle Times writes that the book, quote, packs an even more powerful punch because so much is at stake. That idea of so much is at stake, I know that some people now, it's easy to dismiss that, well, Hitler was pretty far off and their scientists couldn't have done it and we were bombing them around the clock. But again, it doesn't diminish the bravery of these men going for it. And we can never know what might have happened. The Germans might have changed any number of things and gained more time to achieve an atomic bomb. So it's better off that this stuff certainly was not in their hands. We talked a little bit about the movies that we watch, about World War II, about this mission. It's easy to start seeing the German war machine destined to lose, as Homer Simpson calls the Luftwaffe, the Washington generals of the History Channel. <laughs> but that was not the case, and nobody knew this at the time, right? So paint the picture for us of what our world looks like today if the saboteurs fail to cripple Norse Kydro, and if Hitler does achieve that bomb first. Well, I, I think there's no question he would have used it. I mean... Before the invasion of Norway, literally days before, he sent one of his emissaries to Oslo, Hitler did, and had him show a propaganda film which showed uh, London being destroyed by bombs and fire. I don't think he would have hesitated. At a June 1942 meeting, probably one of the most critical meetings of the German atomic bomb program, one of the Air Force generals asked one of the lead scientists of the German program, how big does the bomb need to be to drop it on New York? So this gives you the idea of where their minds were at and what they were willing to do and where they were planning on using it. Now, as you said, the Germans in mid-1942, they backed away from a Manhattan-like big project. But they told their scientists that if they could get a heavy water reactor working, that they would then shower them with all the resources they needed. Prove to us you can do it, and then we will move towards a bigger program. 
And that is why Vermouk sabotage is important. Did it stop the Germans from attaining the atomic bomb? No. Was it part of that story? It absolutely was. There are many dramatic moments in the Winter Fortress that heighten the narrative tension that we were speaking about before. For example, the covert team parachutes into occupied Norway, not only with a bad battery that they need to communicate back to Great Britain, but it's stamped Made in England to boot. So how would you like to get caught <laughs> carrying that around? I mean, it, you laugh now, but gosh, that's a death sentence right there. So before you began your book, all but one of these saboteurs had passed away, gone to join the Vikings in Valhalla, we might say, with all due respect. So how did you track down those details? Who was it? You talked a little bit about some of the descendants of the saboteurs. Well, what else did you go to? Well, I think I want to frame this by saying that my ambition was to try to tell this story as much as I humanly possibly could from the primary sources, from the original documents, from the words or memories of the saboteurs themselves. Now, of course, many of them, most of them, all but one, were dead when I started this story. But I went to the families, and I often do this in the course of other books. I go to the families, and I, you know, I hope that they have a few documents, letters that have been written, memories that their father shared with them or their mother shared with them. And just give you an example of what I found here in Norway. I went to the house or the apartment of Life Tromstadt Jr., hoping that he had something of his father's effects. And Life and I were talking and he was sort of sussing me out and see if I knew what exactly what I was doing. And and then after about an hour he said, you know, come with me. And he took me into this side room, his office. And on the wall was this bookshelf with black binder after black binder after black binder of his father's papers. Life Tronset started a diary the day he got on a train escaping the Gestapo to take his family to safety and then leave to England. He started a diary entry every single day for the rest of his life. He kept a daily journal entry that told what he was doing, thinking, feeling, some of it was in code, but other of it wasn't. And it's really a window into one individual's life in the war, someone who lived these events. And so it just allowed me to put flesh and bone on this story, to tell it from the people who actually lived it. And I actually found that to be the case. I mean, the life concept was extraordinary, but I found interviews, uh, 120 pages on Joachim Ronenberg's uh, memories of the operations. Same with Newt Haukelid. The families just lent me their parents' papers, letters, diaries, so that I was able to tell this story, I think, in a way that probably of all my books, I had the most for this one. That's not to mention the Norwegian Homefront Museum kept all these extraordinary secret papers hundreds, thousands of them, of the planning of these operations, pre-action reports, post-action reports, reports from the saboteurs once they returned. I had everything. In some ways, I almost had too much. It's always the editing that's the hard part, right? Exactly. <laughs> yes. I mean, the book could have been 3,000 pages. It's not. <laughs> I'll, I'll warn readers, it's a nice, healthy 300 and change, but it could have been a much longer book. And the number of incredible stories are seemingly endless. Some of those other incredible stories are the failed attempts to bomb the heavy water plant by air. I think that today we assume 
it's easy to just hit it from the air. It's one of the reasons that the myth of Churchill letting Coventry get bombed has so many legs because you assume the RAF must have been able to shoot down those planes. Well, they shot down, I think, one bomber in the entire defense that they mounted and the anti-aircraft guns didn't hit anything. So the technology just didn't exist at the time to knock a plane out of the sky easily. And there's no smart bombs here. There's certainly no missiles shot out of submarines or anywhere else. So the bombing, unfortunately, does not work. This is not the best plan to try to do it. And some civilians lose their lives. They're killed in one of these attempts to attack the heavy water plant. Talk about Operation Freshman. What is it and how does it turn out? Sure. So in the spring of 1942, it's very clear that Vermuk needs to be hit. The Allies know it, the British, the Americans. Now, what they want to do originally is bomb it from the air. But like you said, there's no precision bombing. And as Lifetron said, advises, you can bomb that thing all day and all night. It's the important part of that plant is in the basement of this huge fortress. You're not going to hit it. And so he suggests doing a precision small man, Norwegian team, 10 men who know the territory, know how to survive within it. But the British don't believe that the Norwegians are up to it. And so they put together this plan called Operation Freshman, which is a British commando raid, uh, Royal Engineer Sappers, who are going to come in to the area by glider. They're going to be towed by Halifax planes across the North Sea, then over Norway, and then dropped. And it is a plan that, if you read these secret reports, was prepared very well. I mean, they thought through every single element of this operation, but it was pretty much doom from the start. You can't land these gliders in this area and know that the weather isn't going to change at any moment. The Vita is a place of tempestuous winds. It's a place that gets, as legend has it, so cold so fast that planes freeze in the fire. Clouds can lower or raise at any moment. And so with Operation Freshman, they're given the all clear, go ahead. It's a wonderful day here in the Vita. The planes come across And by the time they arrive, the weather is dramatically changed. They can't find the landing site. The radio beacon isn't working from the advanced team that's on the ground, Operation Grouse. And one of these Halifax planes breaks off from its tow rope. It crashes into a mountain. The same with the other glider. And the Halifax plane that was towing it tried to find it and crashed into a mountainside. It was an utter catastrophe. And I think it's sort of overlooked over the course of this history. But you have to understand these, these British Royal Engineers were extremely brave soldiers. They were not told even where they were going. They were just told they were going on an important mission and given an option to either do it or not. And every single man in the company stepped forward. Those who weren't killed on impact were either killed, summarily executed by the Germans, or captured, tortured, interrogated, and then killed. To a man, they lost their life. And if you're able to go to Vermuk, there are monuments to these people who died, to the commandos, also the Norwegian civilians. At one point, the ill-fated bombing run, it hits the shelter there, and there's many women and children there that lose their lives. And we talked about this back and forth in email, and it's very easy when you read history to forget that these are real people. And then to go to a place like this where you're thinking of these soldiers being brought out one by one and shot in the back of the head 
contrary to the rules of war, by the way, they, they were wearing uniforms, so they should have been treated as POWs, which is one reason they surrender, trust that they will be taken into custody. They're instead executed in this horrendous way. Imagine, I remember my friend saying the Germans going behind each and every one of these soldiers and executing them. But then the Americans bomb this shelter. They just miss. They don't tell the Norwegians that they're going to do it. And the reason I mention keeping people alive in your mind is we started taking some pictures and then we said, I don't want to take pictures standing next to this. I mean, it's a monument to a horrible thing that happened where these people die and that and just sort of a way of respect. We sort of avoided it. And I know living in New York City, people treat ground zero. You hear people say, I'm going to go take it in like it's the Met or it's Central Park or it's going to the top of the Empire right. State Building. These are real people that lived and died. And your book treats that very well, I thought, treats them with the utmost respect. I don't want to make it sound like these were men who were just amazing, went in and did it. They really did suffer for their ideals and to free Norway again. They did. And and this story is very much a mix of triumph layered with tragedy. I mean, like you said, there are these moments of sadness and loss of life and torture. I mean, if you look at just Shinlan, the spy that Tronset sent in to gather information about the plant so they can be well-informed to uh, penetrate it. He lived this double life for years. His friends, his family, his brothers all suffered because of it. At one point, they're trying to find Einer. They take his best friend. The Germans, the Gestapo, torture him for over a month of just horrific horrific torture. And he doesn't break. He keeps his mouth shut and he doesn't reveal where Einer is and what he's doing. If he would have, these operations probably never would have happened. And yet you've never heard of this man named Olaf Skogen. Nobody, uh, unless you're an expert in this or have read Winter Fortress, you've never heard of him. But he did a remarkable thing and he sacrificed a remarkable lot. And one of the reasons I wrote this book was to sort of bring these people back into people's minds and to remember what they lost and what they fought for and why they fought for it. That's one thing that definitely comes across in the Winter Fortress. You cite the personal price the men pay. At one point, one of them, his father, is only in the next room by coincidence, and he's not able to go and speak to him and hug him and feel like he's connected somehow to his old life. It's a very poignant scene. These are not cardboard cutouts. They're not members of a Norwegian Dirty Dozen. And unlike the Guns of Navarone, which were fictional, as the maybe 13-year-old Dean was horrified to discover, that that was not a real mission. <laughs> the Norsk Hydro was very real. And we talked a little bit about the heroes of Telemark. How do the saboteurs feel about that depiction? The heroes of Telemark, I think the saboteurs, at least as they've spoken about it in the press and in interviews, they sort of look at it as, as a, just a Hollywood uh, generation. They kind of smile at it. Just as an example, Newt Haugland, the radio operator, he's played by Una Jacobson, this very beautiful, blonde, young woman, plays the role of Newt <laughs> which I think his family was a little upset about, uh, that he didn't get his proper due. But again, the heroes of Telmark brought this story to some attention, which I imagine they liked. But if you read these men's letters and you talk to their families, the sabotage of Vermok, which is probably the best-known operation of the resistance in Norway, which is understudied as it is, they don't look at that sabotage as their finest moment. They look at 
other operations they did, they look at the months that they spent surviving and building resistance networks to beat back the Germans. They look at it as that is their finest work. And the sabotage, I think, from their point of view, has stolen the spotlight from a fight that thousands of Norwegians participated in over the course of the war. It's something that I try to do in Winter Fortress is bring to mind that it wasn't just these 10 men on this Operation Gunner side that that stopped the Germans and sabotaged the heavy water plant, but it was the farmers who were giving them food. It was the young woman who was secreting messages uh, back and forth to Heiner Schinnerland. It was the couriers. It was a whole community that was fighting the Germans. And you can find that to be the case on a number of other operations all through the war. Well, that brings us perfectly to my final question, which is after people do read The Winter Fortress, and I hope that my enthusiasm for it and for Norway will be infectious and they will want to pick (laughs) it up, but how would you like to see them honor the contributions of the Norwegian resistance and these nameless, or if they do have names, certainly names we probably can't even pronounce here in America, much less recognize, (laughs) but they were important people. They contributed. Maybe it was just by refusing to bring a Gestapo soldier a sandwich or refusing bravely school teachers to teach the Nazi propaganda to students. So how would you like to see us honor all of those people in that generation that contributed to the ultimate victory over the Axis powers? Well, I hope that readers honor who they are just in the circumstance of reading it and being intrigued on who these men were and what they did and to respect what they did. But I think more than that, I hope that this story brings to fore, again, this idea that heroes are not supermen and that the heroes of the sabotage of Vermuk were plumbers, like Arne Hjellstrup, they were clerks, they were tour guides in the countryside. Very few of them had military experience. They were ordinary individuals who were thrust into this extraordinary moment in history, and they rose the occasion. But they only rose the occasion to fight for their families and for their towns and for each other. And so if anything to be taken away from this, it's that this is possible, that resistance is possible, that fighting this great, horrible power is possible for anyone. And this is just one shining example of that. And that's what I hope readers take away. Well, Neil Bascom, author of The Winter Fortress, thank you for bringing to life these very real heroes and everyday people who don't consider themselves heroes, but played a role in this pivotal moment of world history. I hope people will pick up the book and reflect a little on the debt that all free people owe to the men and women who denied Hitler the power of nuclear war and the ultimate victory he sought. Thank you very much, James. It was a pleasure. Across the Skagerrak to Oslo came the first British officers to receive the surrender of those Germans still in Norway. Obes Kasch of the Wehrmacht meets British Air Commodore Darrow. The RAF meet old comrades, members of Norway's underground army. And the citizens of Oslo, as those of every other liberated country, went mad with joy to be rid at last of the German invader. Norwegian flags reappeared from every window. Until late into the night, the people danced and celebrated in the streets. The pent-up emotions of five years now break their bounds. Norway again belongs to Norway. 
Norway is free. Again, the book is The Winter Fortress, the epic mission to sabotage Hitler's atomic bomb. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even bookmark our URL for all your online purchases. Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every purchase you make at no additional cost to you. And if you have Amazon Prime, by the way, you'll easily get the Winter Fortress in time for Father's Day. If you just give it, eh, what, 48 hours? Love Amazon Prime. Once again, thank you to Neil Bascom for joining us and for sharing one of the great stories of resistance against the German war machine. Check out that first free chapter at neilbascom.com. That's B-A-S-C-O-M-B. Follow Neil Bascom on Twitter or like facebook.com slash neilrbascom. And let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or at facebook.com slash history author. Okay, a bunch of plugs there, but I want you to know I'm completely sincere. Love Norway, love this story, really love the book. Well, that's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for Classical Wisdom Wednesday, History in Five Friday, and next Monday's all-new interview when we'll be right back on schedule. And remember, if you subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, time to get off this sweaty ski suit. Until our next trip into the past together, thank you so much for time traveling with us and remembering the heroes of the Winter Fortress. Happy Father's Day to you fathers out there, and enjoy the book. The boys won the war and came home from the fight. The last night on Broadway was almost his night. But ever since then, it's a different street. Gone are the places where the gang used to be. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.